Hello and welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Family Reflections. I'm your host, Kerry Emanuel, and I'm in here today with a very recognizable face, uh, Mr. Ronald Boo Hinkson. Uh, sir, can you tell the people hello and give us a, a quick introduction? Hi, everybody. How you doing? How you doing? I'm, I'm still recovering from celebrating my birthday on the 17th of September. Um, I don't believe because I see I'm recovering. I've been drinking alcohol. I don't drink alcohol at all, right? I'm a, I'm a total. So alcohol consumption is not part of my life at all. But um, I had a wonderful birthday. My, my wife took that most care of me. I did a lot of nice things for me. So um, I'm fully recovered. So I'm ready for this interview. All right. Uh, how how far? You're a September boy? 17th, man. I just... Celebrate the day before yesterday, man. Yeah, Friday. Have you belated? I didn't know that. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Best uh, people in the world. As a matter of fact, today's today's the prime minister's birthday. Or oh, yesterday. Oh, he's also a September one as well. Yeah, he's in, he's the eighteenth. Oh, nice. I didn't yeah. know that either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I heard it through the grapevine that uh, March bonds are. Uh, uh, the best people in the world, but you didn't hear that from me, you know. Well, people like to distort things. You have a way of distorting things, so you know you can't take you can't take them to task for that. Just leave that alone. <laughs> all right all right but as i said happy belated and we're very glad to have you on the show um Thanks. guys uh i actually spoke to I spoke to Boo on an episode uh, on the Caribbean Cadence platform, and I had such a good time that I really wanted to speak to him here as well. Um, he is he's a legend in, in the St. Lucian and Caribbean music industry, and um, uh, it's really a pleasure to, to have him on, on the show today. Um, can you, uh, I was hoping that you could give us kind of a sense of your, your journey. Tell us your story. Um, so the viewers and listeners can kind of get up to speed. Well, boy, my journey is a very interesting one. Um, so here's what. I grew up in Castries. Um, you know an area called, um, what they call it, Baccaranal? I don't think so, no. That's like Broadway Street. Um, you see your uptown guys know this business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a guy from down south. That's why I'm from down south. I grew up in the middle of of of, of Castries, yeah. and um, my mother actually played the guitar, you know, and that's where my musical career. That's how it started, man. My my mother played guitar, and during the Second World War, my dad, there was a contingent of the British Army in the Caribbean, and my dad was in an army band. Oh, really? They call the West Indian Regiment. And my dad was in that band playing a clarinet. And my mother played guitar. So I grew up, I had music on both sides of my family. Okay. And I think because of that interaction, my, my dad brought home um, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, um, a lot of old jazz music, you know? So I grew up as a kid hearing that, you know? And mm -hmm. I can't, I can't say that I grew up with my dad, but, but the music was in the house and I know it was from his interaction with that, that British regiment, West Indian regiment, that that music got to my home. So I grew up hearing that in the house. Yeah, you know? a wide musical palette then. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and then my mom playing guitar and because I think because of that same influence, 
my mom knew a lot of old jazz standards, you know, and a lot of old beautiful songs with beautiful melodies and beautiful lyrics. You know? And so um, then we had a friend, my brother had a friend called Leo Santos who had a, a, a store called Mama's Funk on the show. Set. And this guy went to England and sent my brother a guitar. And wow, boy, that was the best thing that ever happened, man. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was an electric guitar, man. So yeah. I started to fiddle around with that. And my brother wasn't too pleased about that, you know, that was his guitar. Uh, yeah. The little boy messing with his guitar kind of thing. You know? And then um, I learned a few songs and my mother started to show me stuff. And after a while, everybody was convinced, listen, it seems as though Boo has an aptitude for this thing and he can do it. Yeah. But now I wanted an electric guitar, man. But, but at the time, you know. So that was, first guitar was acoustic. Acoustic, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Modern electric guitar. And all of us grew up poor, man. You know what I'm saying? You know, and, and many of us come from families, you know, that could have just dished out the money to buy a guitar and an amplifier at the time, you know? Right. And I had this friend called Gregory Braffitt who lived in, I think Gregory was in England too or, or somewhere. And he came home for a guitar and an amplifier. And what did I think? Badly, man. Badly. But then we call I hear man. And I think I I I I had the first hunger strike in the Caribbean. Man. I just protested, I stopped eating, man. I must get that guitar. <laughs> Find money to buy for me. <laughs> I, I I put a thing on them, I put a trick on them, I just went on a hunger strike, man. And it I mean, worked. I knew if it worked, man, but I stopped eating, man. And they eventually got me that guitar. Man. They probably never recovered from that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so man. I got this guitar and then I'm fine, you know. And along the way, my mother taught me a lot of stuff, man, because my mother knew all these old songs. Yeah. And but but I was always influenced by Calypso and all the early music from, from Jamaica, the blue beat and the ska. You know what I'm saying? Steady, all this stuff. Yeah. And all the Caribbean music was in my blood. And so I got together with a friend of mine called Michael Alexander. And Michael was the son of Sir Daniel Alexander, who is the Chief Justice of Nigeria. But Michael, um, I knew from, from his friends, huh? and Mike, because Michael lived in St. Lucia. Okay. And we decided to form a little group, you know. But, but hold on, let me just get this straight. So, Michael, the chief, the son of the chief justice of Nigeria, yeah, is living in Saint Lucia. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, how did it happen, boy? I'm not sure. You know, I can't remember. But okay. Michael Alexander and his sister lived in Saint Lucia, and Michael and I were very close friends, and he was. Michael was a brilliant, brilliant guy. He was a bit of a genius, a bright guy. Okay. Michael must have passed for college at about 10 or 9. <laughs> you know? so, so Michael got a guitar and we started to play together and sing, you know. And then we got another friend of mine called Gideon Springer. And we just started to fool around and learn some songs, man. Yeah. And one day, Carlos Mintz, who was the head of the police band, said to me, that they had, um, he had his own band, right? And, and they were supposed to do a performance at a place called Gaiety. That's was this, where the cinema was in town. Yeah. And, but he was otherwise engaged with the police band. So he couldn't start the gig on time. He said to me, Boo, you think you guys can come and hold on for us until I finish my, my gig with the police band? I said, no, we can't do that because 
I mean, we're not a band. We only know a few songs, man. You know? He said, no, nah, come and do it, man. You all can do it, man. That, I'm a little boy at the time, you know, man. I must have been, well, maybe 14 or so. Wow. I said, oh, I can't, we can't handle that. He kept insisting. I said, in addition, we don't even have a name. And he told me, just call yourself True Tones. Just call, <laughs> just call yourself True Tones. <laughs> it's so, just, it's funny how such an impactful name just came from from out of the, yeah. out of the blue, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so I eventually agreed, man. So Michael um, Stringer, myself, we got a, a friend of mine to make a conga for us, you know, because we had no money to buy any drums or anything. Yeah. So he made a conga and we went to the countryside and we got a good skin and, and put it around with some rope and we, used to, we had a hammer at the performance. We used to beat the set all around the drum stretch the skin to keep it in tune, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we put a bulb underneath it, a light bulb. Yeah. So the heat from the bulb will keep the, 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 the skin stretched so it'll stay in tune, you know? Right. And so we had no drummer. We just had a, a one guy between the conga. And, and a friend of mine made a bass. We ordered, we ordered, a, 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 we ordered a, a pickup. Put it on the bass the guy made, he got it in the strips, made the frets, and, and that was it. And that was our band. And we went and we started to play, man. And boy, we knew about maybe what six or eight songs. So, but Carlos hadn't turned up after we had done the eight songs. <laughs> so we just changed the order. <laughs> he started recycling. Yeah, we started. So we did, we had the first recycling in the solution. Yeah. So we started recycling the songs, man. And then eventually. Palace and his band tuna, but I'll tell you what. What I did realize from that is that it told me that I had the capacity to, to do this. Mm -hmm. And from the response of the people, I was convinced that this is what I wanted to do. Because I was a little boy, you know. And I think people are generally um, happy to see young people doing things. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So I was convinced that I could do this, and this is what I wanted to do, man, you know. So we began to, we continued to do this. And at the time, now the, the Peace Corps, a big thing in St. Lucia, the Peace Corps was out of America. You know, these guys but just, just before we move on to the Peace Corps, uh, I'm kind of wondering what, what brought, his, his name was Carlos, right? The, Carlos the guy, Mendes. yeah, the guy playing for the police band. Yeah, he was, he was the director of music for police band, Carlos Mendes. Right, did he have, was he around your rehearsals? Was he seeing you guys playing? How did he get the sense? Well, what happened was that I used to I used to do people would invite me to perform certain places as a little boy just by myself with no band, you know. Yeah. I just go and play stuff, you know. And and so Carlos knew what I could do, you know. All right, okay. On one or two occasions he had me sitting with the police band and people were amazed. Hey, this little boy played the guitar in the police band. <laughs> you know? All right. So, but but I'll tell you what though. Um at the time, I'm not sure whether whether um, all that attention. I think I, 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 I was able to deal with it when I was performing, but when I was not, I don't think I liked the attention because people would come to my home and say, my mother's name was Iona. Iona, which is the one playing the guitar? Boo, go and play a song for the people. <laughs> I used to hate people coming to my home, you know, because yeah. that'd be an ordeal I have to go through all the time. So what I would do is if people come to my home, I just go downstairs, my room was downstairs, and when that time we lived in Rock Hall, I used to just lock my room and disappear from people. Because I just found it was a bit of a, 
I was like a little showpiece and I didn't like that. So. Yeah. I think up to now, I don't mind going on stage, but when I get off stage, I want to leave everything that happens with the music on stage and you know, carry that around with me. Do you consider then, yourself an uh, introvert or extrovert? How do you... I, I, can be, I can be an introvert. If I get into big crowds and I'm not playing music, I can just stay in a corner that I saw or one or two people that I know I'm very comfortable with. But um, if, I'm, if I'm playing music, I got to do it, you know? But mm. other than that, I'm, I'm very comfortable with a little group of people that I know. I can go in a big thing and just stay there with these people all night. Right, right. Not go to the rest of the crowd, you know? <laughs> but um, so I was telling about the Peace Corps. This Peace Corps used to have the parties and thing, and Barclays Bank had a place um, by the VG field there, you know, on at the back of Blanche Road. And these guys used to have parties there, and we used to go play for them. By that time, we had bought a hi hat. We didn't have a whole drum set, we just bought a hi hat, you know. <laughs> and I think, man, what is a hell of a thing? <laughs> That's a hell of a journey, man. So you had the hi hat and the the the, the... the hi hat and a congo, you know? Yeah. And and um, we had maracas. These things, that's all we could afford, man. And these guys used to pay us like forty dollars for the whole band, man. Forty dollars. We pay from nine o'clock at night till two in the morning. Forty dollars. Wow. <laughs> I think now, now I think that I can I can consider that child abuse, man. You know. <laughs> yeah, that 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 stuff there. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. So we worked at it, worked at it, worked at it, and then um we began to eventually we. We, we managed to buy a sound system, man, and that was a thing called a, 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 I had a whim, a whim sound system. And we just had two little speakers on the corner, and, and I got a vocalist, you know. And we began to grow, and then I added horns. Right. And, um, but I'll tell you what, I had an upbringing here that I don't know if any other young person ever had, because yeah, I might come from this family that didn't have very much. But I was still going to school and I had a band. Yeah. So by that time, at the college, it was run by the Presentation Brothers. And you have to know that in that era, it was not all right for young people to be going to play music for money. That was the thing something that I looked down upon. Really? Yeah. And why, your college, why, why was it looked down on? Because that's the era. That's, that is the perception at the time. Your college boy, you're going to play music for money. You crazy? <laughs> so he to my mother, might say to my mom, I don't know, how are you letting the boy go play music for money? But what I didn't realize, my mother saw my potential. And my mother was the one teaching me to play. But she played guitar, yeah? And so with all of this encouragement, things began to grow. And lo and behold, I started to write a lot of songs. I started to record pretty early. So we got booked to go to St. Vincent to perform in Barbados, and I was still going to school. Here's the story now. So sometimes it would be a Monday. Monday would be a holiday in St. Vincent. And it was not a holiday here. And I had mm -hmm. to perform in St. Vincent for the weekend. So I had to get permission from the presentation, from the presentation brothers to leave to go to play in St. Vincent. Because I said, I'm still at school. So sometimes they'll say okay, sometimes they say no. Right. Anyway, um, what would happen is that I'll fly to St. Vincent on a Friday afternoon with my homework. Performance <laughs> <laughs> in St. Vincent, right? And so we perform in St. Vincent Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Monday's a holiday in St. Vincent, it's not a holiday here. So these guys would charter a plane 
to fly me back to school Monday morning and fly me back to St. Vincent Monday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and at this that, time, you're about 15, 16, there about? Yeah, at the college, yeah. And, and I never realized what was happening in my life because I was only interested in the music. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize what was happening. I didn't realize how, how popular I was or anything. I never, never occurred to me. Yeah. And in fact, um, we got really, really popular in St. Croix in that area. So these guys used to bring us to St. Croix to perform all the time. And they would charter a plane to fly me and the band to St. Croix. All the way to St. Croix. And Muna, I don't know if you know Muna. Muna no, is a no, good no. mind that I've known for years. Uh, and Muna became, um, Muna, Muna used to work at the hangar at VG Airport. And a friend, a mutual friend taught him to fly. And Muna went on to have a, a great career as a pilot, flying 747s and so on. Wow. So Muna used to fly us to St. Croix in these places to perform and to Martinique and so on, because these guys are charter. And we'd land in St. Croix, and there'd be a whole lot of people at the airport and police and so on. And it never even occurred to me that all that commotion at the airport was because I was coming to perform. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's good, right? Because I guess even then, not just not being aware of that pressure, right? It just kind of kept you focused on the music then? Well, not only that, it kept me humble. Yeah, okay. It kept me humble, you know what I'm saying? Um, so this evening used to come to the airport man in droves. And that time, there's a lot of solutions in St. Croix. A lot of solutions went to St. Croix to work in, in, in the oil, you know, with Hess. Yeah. And so these people used to turn out in droves, man. At the airport, we have a lot of people and police at the airport to control the traffic and everything. And then, because boo, and the drones <laughs> arrive in St. Croix. And, and, Man, listen, that thing never, it never until years after occurred to me what I was doing and what I had become. Yeah. You know? But then it also told me um, I was negotiating badly mm. because I was young. I didn't know the business at the time. Yeah, you didn't. You went away. It should have occurred to me that if a guy can charter, get a charter from St. Lucia to St. Croix and the plane waited for me for a whole weekend, then somebody's making a lot of money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But anyway, um, that was part of my my whole journey, man. And then but um I, I want to just just before you continue, I want to just roll back a little bit because you mentioned um that you started writing songs, right? Oh, yeah. Um I, I'm wondering what made you take that forward jump to starting to create your own original. Uh, music. I thought, I thought, man, I really wanted to succeed at this thing, you know. And I thought, to me, I started to read a lot about about music and the industry and so on. And then, strangely enough, one of the guys who used to come to my house um, was very famous as Rick Wade. And Rick, everybody knew Rick um, as his bodybuilder, one Mr. Yeah. Universe, Mr. America, Mr. Mr. World, kind of thing. Right. I saw Rick as a musician because I knew Rick was recorded in England. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know Rick Wade was a musician. Rick used to come to my house, man. I used to talk to Rick a lot and ask him a lot of questions. And then um, um, I got to reading a lot about it, the music thing and following a lot of, read a lot about Ricky Nelson, all these old guys, all these old guys. And, and I saw it occur to me, listen, boy, if you want to get anywhere in this thing, you better start to write your own songs. Because to me, the time it took me to learn a song or, or, or five songs to go to perform, I might as well sit and write a song in a time, you know? 
So I left when I left school, I wanted to just go to my music full time. And my mother said to me, listen, boom, if you want to succeed at this, you need to be very disciplined. And my advice to you is go get an eight to four job so you can develop some work ethics because nobody in St. Lucia had just decided to do music full time in St. Lucia before. I had no template, I had no yardstick, I had nobody to talk to, to tell me how to do this in St. Lucia because it hadn't been done. But one thing I was aware of is that the tourism industry was still in the embryonic stage. I knew it had to grow. So I knew there'd be employment because all the hotels need entertainment. Okay. They must have music. So my mother insisted I go find an eight to four job. So I went to work with government for a while. I work at the income tax department. And I have to confess, I wrote a lot of songs during that while I was working. You know? <laughs> and then I was transferred to treasury and I continued to write songs and I started to record. Um, so I started to go to Barbados to record. And then at the time we were recording on like a stereo thing, there's two tracks, you know, everybody has to play one time. <laughs> so, you know, you have to run these songs really well and do this thing one go. And then I, I, I started to go to Jamaica. And you know the cost to do that at the time. I had to fly my whole band to Jamaica. We had to do a hotel plus the studio. But and when just and because, let me just hop in. Uh, was she right? Uh, your your mom having that vision to well, have absolutely. you absolutely because she told me, listen, you have to understand what it is to go to work at eight o'clock in the morning, go to lunch at twelve thirty, you go back to work at one thirty, and you do an honest this work for your money. And she kept my mother was like a soldier, you know. <laughs> Don't forget, I I I I I I really didn't grow up with my father. I know the influences of my father in the home because of the music he brought home. And, and that was left there. So I, I grew up with that. Plus I learned a lot of stuff that influenced from my mom. Yeah. So I thought it was a brilliant idea that my mom advised that I should go find it for a job so I can develop some work ethics. And, and I roll that over into my music because my music, I'm very, very disciplined. I mean, up to this day, I get about four in the morning if I have to practice. I get about four in this practice, whatever I have to do, I just do it. There's no if, but, or maybe, because I, I firmly believe that um, if you don't know what to do with a, a five seven with a sharp nine flat five, then you just don't know. <laughs> you know, there's no marijuana you can smoke to make you know. You have to practice. Right. You know, so so I don't fool around with that. You know, and then more than that, my, my management, my agent, my management now are American. And if these guys call me on a gig, I can't say, well, boy, I'm not on top of my chops now, you know. I've been practicing, you know, these guys just dropped me you know, because they can find many other people other than Boo. Right. So, so I still, I'm very committed. And I think that discipline came from my mom. Yeah. So, so I did all these things now and then I decided to go to Jamaica to record because I wanted that sound that I don't think I was getting from Barbados at the time. And then at the time I was, I had some, some reggae songs like burning eyes on a hungry belly. I know that. And I wanted to, I wanted to get a Jamaican sound from that. And, and so I thought, Jamaica's the place I have to go together. And I had the leaders don't know which way they're going. Will I be sheep and only following? Calling so, <laughs> would you say at the time that Jamaica was kind of the, the, the 
gold standard in the Caribbean for recording? Yeah. Producing? Okay. So I went to Jamaica and at the time, man, let me tell you, I was young. And it cost me $107,000 to do that project. That is the risk I took. That's, that's how much I believe in what I was doing. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I flew my band to Jamaica. We had to do a hotel for all of this time. And we recorded two albums. Because I didn't think it was sensible to go to Jamaica and just do one album because you know, the cost. Of it. Yeah. If you dare, you might as well. So we just wrote a, I just wrote a lot of songs. And I did a few covers and I just did two albums. And now my music caught a lot more exposure. And at the time, what I do also, I one of the things about St. Lucia is that. There's a lot of external validation in St. Lucia. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. But St. Lucia have a notion, St. Lucians have a notion that if something is from outside is good. Yeah, I, I, I can resonate with that. Oh, it's yeah. better. So there was Radio Antilles that was based in Monstra. And I had some friends in the station in Gus White. So when I did new material, something I would send it to them before I released it in St. Lucia. And Radio Antigua was very popular in the islands. So once people from here heard it on Radio Antigua, they said, gosh, we're going to some new stuff out, blah, 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 blah. By the time, at the time now, MNC had a record store in town where Home Depot is in town. Yeah. Um, and one of my, one of the times when I brought him was one of my new, what we used to call LPs at the time. When he got to the store, there was such a rush, I had to close the store. Because people were rushing for it because they heard the songs on Radio Antilles from outside first. You know? And that taught me a few lessons about our, our us as, as a people, you know, that yeah. we still have this external validation. Because yeah. there's a lot of great music coming out of St. Lucia now. A lot of it produced by a lot of young people. I mean, there's so, so many great young musicians in St. Lucia, great young singers, great young yeah. writers. A lot of them. And um, they're not given enough exposure and opportunity in their own country. We must make stars of them in, in, in their own country. We, we have an obligation to do that for them. You know? And so, so that the time it took me to get to Miami, it should take them a quarter of that time or far less than that time because all the parameters are there now to make it happen for them. So we must get over this thing, this external validation of everything from outside is better than what we have because that's not always true. What, what do you think uh, as, a, as a nation we can do to uh, kind of uh, remove some of the roadblocks there? Well, a few things we have to do. So for instance, um, Canada, Canada has a, a quota, 40% must be Canadian and it, and it also stipulates that the, the 40% must be played between six in the morning and six in the evening. This is how Twilight like Drake got to where he is. This is how Diana Crawl got to where she was. You know? This is what, that's how Canada produces the big names. Because they have realized that if you don't do that, the music will become second class to everybody else's, rather than theirs. Okay. And, and the reason why they tell you it must be played between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. is because after six, most people are into their TV and news and, you know, whatever they're watching on TV. So there's that stipulation. And don't believe these laws don't exist in America. They do, but America does not have to 
produce their stuff and because they produce so much music and other big names in the world, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But um, I think that's one of the things we need to look at. And it should have been done even during this, it was even more necessary to do during this pandemic because I had a friend of mine, a musical, a musician friend of mine come to my house um, last week and he was telling me he hadn't worked since March last year. And it's because of the pandemic. So had we had that law in place, all the musicians who were writing or who have music released, if we had a quota, they would have generated a lot of money during the pandemic and we would end up needing any help from government. Yeah. Uh, I think I think when we were discussing this earlier on today, uh, I mentioned to you that I saw a, a bassist, a bass guitarist, who was on Facebook saying that he wanted to just sell his bass. He was ready to give up, you know? Um, and it's very sad. A lot of musicians are struggling right now. Yeah, it's struggling, man. You know, it's so, so, I mean, it should have occurred to the authorities that that was the most opportune time to introduce a quota because a lot of the airtime, the money generated from airplay would have stayed among us here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, so musicians are not working. And and um, that would have helped considerably, you know. But I don't suppose um, you can always get authorities to listen. And maybe we're just not important. We're important at certain times when it's convenient to them. Musicians must wake up and realize that, man. You know? Yeah. Uh, sometimes people people don't don't really they they don't have enough incentive to help out until they feel it in themselves, you know. Yeah. And yeah, that's, you know, that's the truth. Um, so, so to, to go back to my journey, so after I started to record, man, um, a lot of my marketing and the stuff I'd done in Barbados before I, I started with Jamaica was with West Indies Records Limited, WIRL, we call them World. And these guys had an ongoing um, marketing deal with um, Warner Brothers. And so my music got into America because it was a now on Warner Brothers label. And because of that now, I had a friend called Mike Millius that I knew well. And he, he, dated, um, he dated someone doing um, a soap opera, One Life to Live, and then she did Eric and All My Children. And he got some of my music on the soap opera. Okay. So, so one day I got a call from Ezra says she used to live in Texas at the time. She said, boo, man, I had them first using your song on a soap opera night. I said, oh yeah, wow, I'll look into it. But I had made all the arrangements, you know. But I didn't want to get into a long conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, lo and behold, in 1979, which is before you were born, the that Super Bowl decided, born. Super Bowl decided they wanted a, a Caribbean halftime show. And because my music was already in America, I had a name because I was on Warner Brothers and Ring. So they contacted the tourist board here. And I was part of this 1979 Super Bowl halftime show. And that's, that's a big deal. Because <laughs> I, I don't need to tell the viewers and listeners how big the Super Bowl is, right? <laughs> so, so that was one of the pinnacles of my, that was one of the big, big victims of my career, man. You know? To be part, so there were other, some other groups from the Caribbean on, you know, which of us got out of slots. This is this is huge, you know. Yeah. Up, up to this day, I have I have um, 
I have an LP, it's still in the shrink wrap, that my daughter just got me about two years ago of that recording from the Super Bowl in that year. <laughs> so, so walk us through that day a little bit. You, you're at the Super Bowl. Uh, who's there with you? Is it your original band? Has your band changed significantly oh, you know, at yeah, this band, point? Most of the guys are no longer around. But, you know, I had um, Mervyn Foster played bass, Mervyn is Luther's brother. But Mervyn was probably, probably the best bass player in the Caribbean. Right? Um, I think I had um, either Junior Sintoma or Rudy always played drums. I had Clarence playing trumpet. Um, maybe Ricky on trombone. Um, again, I can't remember who I don't keep at the time. But a lot of the original guys, you know. And we okay. went and we played Super Bowl. And the night before, we played for the press party. So when, when, when we were told we had to do the press party, I thought, well, this is Super Bowl press party. We could probably have about 600 people, 4,000 people at the press party. Because, you know, Super Bowl, everybody converges on that stage. So we saw the big stars. I saw Jim Brown. I saw Melba Moore. I saw all kinds of people, John Travolta, you know, because you're in the thick of things. You know? Right, right. And, and so that was one of the, the big things for me in my career. And um, um, so we continued. I continued to record. And, and, and more and more, I began to make inroads into, into America. And then, in more recent times, Jazz Festival came about in St. Lucia. And that connected me to a lot of people. I have to, I have to be really thankful to, to the government for ever having started this Jazz Festival because um, it really broadened my network. Wow. And that's the thing that the younger musicians must learn to, to do effectively. You, you, you really need to network in this business. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't, it's difficult sometimes to open some doors. You, know? you have to be clear about who you need. You have to know who can do what for you. But you must be, um, you must be able to, it is best if you can reciprocate in some way. Yeah. And so um, to this day, I'm still in touch with George Benson. We're still um, talking on the phone. If I had to play something and I don't understand, I just call him, you know. <laughs> I just call him and say, George, you know, he plays so and so and so. And, so. Um, and I, I don't I think that's a, a benefit of the, the jazz festival. Uh, I think the, the name has changed now uh, a, a bit. I think the, the festival has changed now slightly, but the numbers the name has changed. A lot of things have changed, man. Right. But but I already did benefit a lot from it. Yeah. Um, and um even now, a lot of the collaborations, um, I would say a lot, but but it connected me to a lot of musicians that um, and it changed my stature because I got called by BT one time to do an hour special for them and they flew my me and the band to Jamaica and we filmed, I think, called Jazz in the Sun. And that was on BT like five times a day, you know? Oh. I'm talking an American audience, you know? Yeah. so you know my career. And then, and then I did um, one of my albums. I did a song called "King of My Jungle," and I did. I shot that video in New York also. And that was also on BT five times a day. So I was on BT with my band of Jazz in the Sun, and I was there with my other track, a very different kind of neo school kind of vibe of "King of My Jungle," and that was on BT all day. And, and the strange thing is that 
Sometimes I'd get a call at two in the morning and somebody would call me, boo, man, you're on BT, you know? <laughs> I said, so what am I supposed to do, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I don't have the time, man, because I think some should are just excited to see a local person on BT kind of thing, you know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, but I want to point out that I'm hearing, I think my volume might be a little loud on my mic here. Um, uh, I want to point out that I'm hearing that a, a number of milestones kind of helped with your uh, penetration of the U.S. market, which sounds like it was uh, integral Absolutely. to your success. So the Absolutely. first one being uh, uh, the soap opera, right? Well, um, well, soap opera, yeah, the soap opera. Right. Uh, well, the Super Bowl was 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 big too, you know. The yeah, the, I I would agree that the Super Bowl was probably the biggest. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in more recent times, it was it was BET and the Jazz Festival because that was constant. Yeah, you know, I was yeah. there. I was in BET almost every day for, for that. And that went on for a while. And even after that particular series, Jazz and Sunday, I filmed in Jamaica for, for BET and my track, King of My Jungle, BET would come in to do the Jazz Festival and they show clips and I'd be in these clips. So some just would watch the Jazz Festival on TV and they would see Earl Clue and they see George Mason and they see Boeing. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and that goes back to the, ex, the external validation that I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, because yeah. if you see me on, on local TV, it wouldn't be such a big thing. But see me on TV you know, with American, in American, with American artists was a big do, you know? And then also, um, um, there's one year George came for the festival and I was leaving to go to a gig I had to do after my performance. I opened time, I had to leave. And the security guard ran and got me at the gate and said, boo. And they, they wanted to come back for a minute, you know. So I went back and I was going on and I discovered that George Benson wanted me to come and play a song with him. And I, I can't tell you how nervous I got. You know? <laughs> so, so I went to stand by the engineer to listen to the, the concert. And in the middle of the concert, George says, it's booing the audience, come on stage. And lo and behold, the had the amplifier, everything set up for me. And I went on stage, man, but nervous like hell, you know. But it was, it was all good. And when, so when people in the world see that, you know, it, it gives you a certain stature. Right. Because, because not, any, not any and everybody gets to be invited on stage to play George Benson, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So, so that's, that, that kind of thing does help your career. And then subsequently that I played with Klug, you know. And then um, I began to write for, for Tracy Hamlin. Tracy used to be the lead singer for a group called Pieces of a Dream. Okay. And I started to write for her. And um, she started to record stuff. The first song of mine she recorded was a song I'd written for Santa Love called um, Magic in Love. And then Tracy did that song and it really did well, you know. And then my name got, began to spread as a, as a writer also, not just a guitar player. All right, so and it's, it's, you now opened up a whole new career, right? A whole new and, career. Yeah. And then... Um, and then she did other stuff of mine. She did um, she did a song called uh, gosh, what she did mine again? User friendly. A lot of stuff I wrote for Tracy, you know. And she 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 done well. You know? So that has helped my name in in the in the musical circles in America. But then going to America to perform, you begin to meet more and more people. Your name fellas begin to talk about you, and then begin to spread. And then in more recent times. Um, I did the Lincoln Center in New York with Arturo Tapin, um, with Hugh Masakila, 
Arturo Tapin is uh, Saint, Saint yeah. Vincent. No, Barbados. Barbados, okay, right. Yeah, and Arturo is on a lot of my recordings also, and he's a brilliant, brilliant musician. Oh, yeah. Arturo, Arturo worked with Roberto Flack for like sixteen years or so. He was a saxophone player, and then so this is where I met guys like Satrick, who was Richard Bonner's musical director. I met Bakiti Kumalo. Bakiti and I played at Lincoln Center because Bakiti is the best player who played on Call Me Aleph, Paul Simon. You know that big chap. <laughs> right. And then I'm talking to Bakiti. I said, Bakiti, man, why is it nobody can play that, that, that lick you put in Call Me Al? And he said to me, um, there was a stop in the song. And he asked Paul to put something in there. And incidentally, it was his birthday. So he said, Paul, I want to play something here because it's my birthday. And he played it. And you know what they did? They reversed the tape for that lick. And that's why nobody can play the exact thing. Because it's in reverse. Yes. So you have certain little artifacts. So you can't play the exact thing because what, what you're hearing on the record is not what Bakiti played. Interesting. And you know what? I got that, I got that story previously from, from Paul because I've met Paul Simon through Derek Walters. Okay. Oh, you know, a lot of things have happened in my. So, in my... were you? Are you? Uh, well, were you well acquainted with Derek Walcott? Very. We were very close. Okay. Derek used to come to my studio a lot to record stuff, you know, and he would give me um, stuff he, he wrote to put music to. And uh, on many occasions, Derek, would, when I when he came to the studio, hear what I did, he would start to cry. And the two of us in the studio alone, Derek is there crying. I said, Derek, why are you guys so emotional over this thing? He says it's because for the first time, he's getting exactly what he wants because we both talk in the same language. So if Derek spoke about Godada, you get the image of a buxom fat black woman in the little, in the little shop in the countryside. Yeah. In the area, the area he spoke of in the recording, I know exactly where that is. So I understand the language, I understand the scene, I understand the atmosphere because that's what I grew up in also. Right, and you can translate that musically. Into music, yeah. So he said to me, he's worked with um, Andre Tanker, he worked with Gold McDonald, and Gold is a guy who has a Grammy and everything, but, but um, the indigenous thing that I understand, they don't quite understand because it's it's... It's us, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it, it is us. You know, so, so Derek and I would go to the countryside and we, and, and he would just stop somewhere and look at a, a, a scene in the countryside. And he'd start to talk. And Derek got very solution when he was relaxed. Yeah? He's very, very solution. And I can connect right away. So if he has music he wants done, I know where he saw that thing. I know what he felt at the time because I was there. Right. So it's, 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 um, and it taught me a lot too. It taught me how to compose for that kind of thing, which is very different to composing for the market. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a very different approach. You know, and it taught me a lot about emotion, bringing emotion to, to, to music. And then I also did a lot of music. There was an, uh, an organization here called the Arts Guild. It was a theatrical group and they did a lot of theatrical productions. That's what bless the soul. Arthur Jacobs just died, Barbara Jacobs' father. 
and he was an integral part of one of the biggest actors in St. Lucia. And I did a lot of music for some of Derek's um, brother's production, Roddy Walters. And incidentally, this production, I played banjo. And that's where I learned a lot of solution music and a lot of solution rhythms from the old guys. The folk, old folk music, yeah. Old folk music, I know it very, very, very well. Because I, I played it, I learned it from these guys. So Is that being passed down, the, the folk music? Because I don't know many people that know how to... It is, it is, it is but a lot of the young musicians now who, who, who do it, I'm not talking about the guys like... Um, Eastern Pope Band or the guys like Secret Band. I'm talking about the younger musicians who do it. You're not paying attention to detail. All the nuances that make it sound that gives it that indigenous tension feel. Yeah. You're not paying attention to that. You know? But it sounds but, um, like that, that might get lost with time then. Well, I'm hoping it wouldn't. You know, I actually one time stopped everything I was doing, I did an entire album of Yes Solution folk music because in an effort to preserve it, you know. And, 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 and one of the things I distinctly remember on working on that project, I, I wanted to, there's a song called I Do Do. And on that recording, I used Adrian Oje's daughter because she doesn't sing regularly, but she's a beautiful singer, a really good singer. And she has a lot of range. You know these young people who are very talented, but they just take it for granted. <laughs> And academically, she's very bright also. So mm. she's very well-rounded. So I said, Mary, if I wanted to do a song. And she had never done this song before, she didn't know it, but, but Maria grew up in a home where she heard a lot of music because Bam Charles, who's her grandfather, um, was a piano player. And we used to have a lot of sessions at his house with Luther, and, and nurse and myself, a lot of us used to come here to play music. So she grew up as a little baby, often. Anyway, I taught her that song. I told her, I want you to just make it your own. And she did a version of it with some guidance and it was brilliant. And I wanted a particular feel. So I brought down this friend of mine from the States who's a flute, saxophone and flute player, mm-hmm. professor of music. And when he came down, I said, Roger, I want you to put a soul on this song, but I want it kind of bluesy. This is Sanusian folk music, but I want it kind of bluesy. That's an interesting combination there. Yeah. And uh, you see, I wanted to make the folk music a little contemporary, but not lose the indigenous thing. Because I wanted young people to connect to it. You know? Yeah. But I didn't want to lose the indigenous thing about it. And when he started listening to the song before he played it, I can see the chairs roll down his eyes. I say, well, I'm seeing man, Rosie. Said, man, boom, that music is so good. But he doesn't understand how this can be solution folk music and be so sophisticated. Where did it come from? And, and you know, you are shocked that St. Lucia had such brilliant and sophisticated melod- melodically sound folk music. And today that's one of the best songs on, on, on the album. That's really for the very, very good. But um, I, I know the music here is in good hands, man. A lot of good young musicians here. Fellas like Dwight, who's a good guitar player. There's oh, yeah. Zach is a great player. Daniel is a great um, player. He's a great producer. Right. Um, there's Delhi. There's a lot of good singers like this Yasmin Butcher. There's, oh, yeah, I know Yasmin. I went to school with Yasmin, actually. 
But you went to school. That was <laughs> yeah. a good singer, man. She was in my class, yeah. Ah, oh, man, Yasmin can sing. And then there's Shannon Pennell in Beaufort. Shannon is awesome. There's um, Crystal, 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 um, who is Zach's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Christopher, she did the twelfth time on with me. Okay. And there's um, there's who again? Demas. Just a whole lot of good singers in Saint Lucia, man. A lot of good singers. I think yeah. what has happened is that. I think a lot of young people are recording, just putting the music out on YouTube and social media and so on, and hoping something would happen. The chances of that happening are not. Um, it's kind of slim. Slim. Yeah. You know, Rihanna didn't just happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll tell you what, too. Even just putting your music on YouTube or iTunes or um, Visa or Spotify, let me tell you what. For every stream, you get about 0.00397 of a cent, of a cent. <laughs> so it's, it's going to take you a couple of streams before you get a cent. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get several million streams before yeah. you make money. Yeah. So you have to be a mega star to make any lot of money. You have to be a Drake or a Rihanna or someone. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, right now, Congress is looking at some laws that will change how the streaming platforms operate and what they speak to the authors of the music. Because what is we realize that most of the money is going to the people who own the platform. And the, the, the people who, the creators of the music are not getting that money out of it. You know? So yeah. hopefully, um, and in the Grammys, we have um, people who are there lobbying Congress to do that. So hopefully that will change sometime. And um, this is not going be getting more money for, for the streaming of their music. You know? Yeah. And uh, it's so good that you started uh, speaking a little bit to um, the path forward for young artists, because I really wanted to ask you uh, to let's imagine there's a young artist right now watching this show, this show and this person has the talent, they have the gift, um, but they, they want to know how this works. They want to learn uh, and find out uh, how does the business end work? Uh, how should I uh, promote my music? How can I get my name out there? You know, I wanted to get some, some of your input on that. First of all, you must by all means have a social media presence. That is crucial in the business today. You know what I'm saying? Um, you need to find somebody who handles successfully artists doing the genre that you're doing. Because by yourself, it's not going to be easy. Trust me, it's not going to be easy. You don't... Marketing yourself as a musician is not an easy task. So you need to find somebody who is handling a successful artist doing your genre that you're doing. Right. That is not hard to do. You can just go look up some, some, some agents and so on and um, talk to them. Find an agent who's handling 
So if you're doing reggae, find an agent who's handling Romaine vocal. Find an agent who's handling um, anyone of Jamaican artists and talk to them. And, but make sure the music you present is very well done. That at that level, you don't feel wrong. You're very serious and don't get to things that you're not doing, you're not delivering, you don't, that's the work because they're not gonna worry for you because there are many millions of people like you and better than us, you know. Okay. Um, that is one of the things. And then you have to, you have to, a lot of the artists here, I say to them, listen, you have to learn how to be managed, man. You have to learn how to be managed because you don't get a manager and do what you want to. You don't have an agent to do what you want. You, know? you have to learn how to be managed. The, certain things have to happen in a certain way at this level. And you don't do it, and you get left by the wayside. But people don't, people at that level don't have time to waste. You know? okay. Except if you, if they see something exceptional and say, listen, that's money in the bank. They might be a little tolerant. But if you come in just as good as anybody else, forget it. You don't come and around. Yeah. And then you have to, you have to set aside money for positioning yourself and your marketing. So don't expect to put out a, 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 a track and you generate some money. Just, just go to months with the money because you have to market the song. You have to market yourself, you have to position yourself. You have to, you have to deal with, with um, people you want to network with. It might mean taking them to lunch, it might mean taking them to dinner, a simple thing as that, you know? Right. That is how you build your network. So, so handle the money very, very, very well, man. And if you're lucky and you, you make money, invest in something else that can give you passive income. Because there's going, at some point there's going to be a lull and you want to be able to fall back on something yeah, yeah. to pick up the slack. Is that? Yeah. yeah. And that is where you should, early, you should go into something and generate some passive income for you. Because sometimes you get, you're trying to get your way back in and you need to reposition yourself and market. So for my people to get me on to, let's say like, um, for my people to get me on to smoothjazz.com or one of these indie charts, sometimes it can cost about 1,500 US a month. Wow. And the local artist doesn't have that kind of money. Okay. So you have to do music that can generate money. So when your people spend that money on you, you can get back money. They're going to any money I just spend on you, rest assured you have to pay it back. Okay. It's not, there's no free ride. You understand? There's no free ride in this business. Right. So, so you have to don't do things that are mediocre because it's not going to make money. Because you see, a lot of people figure because of social media, it has made life a lot easier for them. But you have to understand that, that Drake is on social media too. And Rihanna is there too. Right. You understand? And Wizkid is there. And everybody else who's as big as this name that fall is on social media. That's what you're competing with now. So don't believe it has gotten easier because now you're on social media. You have to spend money to direct people to yourself. Yep. So it's, it's, it hasn't gotten any easier. There's you still have to put in the work. You still have to put in the work. You know what I'm saying? You still have to put in the work. So, so, and then 
when you find um, an agent or manager who can handle your business, you have to know you have to give up some money for that. And do not, some, some artists have a notion that when that man make a lot of money on my head, you're not kind of fool. <laughs> that's dumb fool sister, you know? People have to make the money, you know? Yeah. Um, Everybody uh, has to eat. Well, I did jazz, jazz festival here, right? Um, often my money went to America. My money, you know what I'm saying? My money went to my agent. You know, my agent is the one who cut the deal. When I went to Taiwan, my last tour, of Taiwan, my agent is the one who cut the deal. My money went to America. And then he, my agent gets the pay, and then I get my money, I pay my musicians. Right. You, so you have to do this thing like a businessman. You know? But to get your music out there is to find somebody who handles the genre you're handling and is handling a successful artist and try to work with that person. But present the person with good stuff. And do not send the person 10 songs. Don't do that. They send two or three songs. Your best two. songs. Because they're not going to listen because they're busy. Yeah. Just send two or three of your best songs and have them listen to that. And even when you send two or three, they probably will not listen to the whole song. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you only get 30 seconds probably. I'm telling you, man, I love the thing. <laughs> So you have to know all of these little, all of these little things, and um, and even now during the pandemic, is to keep writing and keep putting stuff out there, because like I have had, let me tell you what happened to me. My, my agent called me about maybe maybe twenty twenty one, maybe late twenty nineteen or early twenty twenty, and said to me, "Boo, I think I'm going to release African Queen." I said, no, this is during the pandemic. I'm not performing anywhere. I'm not touring. We're not, we're not, we have no tours because everything is on lockdown. Um, he said, no, nah, I just came from Senegal. And I was playing the music then. That track is, 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 is doing good. So I said to him, well, well um, and he's based in America. He's based in DC. I said, but America is not Senegal. You know? <laughs> so don't so spend money on that now. No, 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 no. I know any money this guy spend, they have to be paid. Yeah. So... He kept arguing with me. I said, nah, I'm not performing anywhere now. All the hotels are closed. We had to do, I had, I had to go back to Taiwan. I was canceled. I had to do, I had two shows in England canceled. We had to go to, we had one in Toronto because we had done a show here. One of my concerts, the other concert I did, Eric Darius, and the guy booked the concert for Toronto. I lost that. We did Jazz on the Green Trinidad. We got booked again. Was, we lost that too. You know, and that's how my musicians survive when I go on tour, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think people understand that most of a, a musician's uh, revenue actually comes from touring. People yeah. think it, it might be album sales, but it's really touring is where people really eat. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so one day he calls me and says, Boo, you know, you're on the charts. This is my agent. I said, I'm on the charts. So, what song? So, me, African Queen. I said, but I thought really agree, we're not going to release that. I, I said, he told me, yeah, I, 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 that's what I said, but I released it. And I, so he sent me the thing. I, I'm looking at Radio Guitar One Charts and I'm at number 10. And I'm saying, my gosh, you see what I told you earlier on about you have to learn how to be managed? Yeah. Sometimes you have to learn to trust your management and your agent. And them. Right. Sometimes you have to trust. Then I went up to number six, then number four. I went up, I went up, and I spent six weeks at number one. Wow. With a song that was four years old. 
that I told him, don't release that. It's too old. Yeah. It's during the pandemic. I'm not performing, so we're not generating money. And I'm not trying, so don't do it. But uh, sometimes these guys have an inkling. Yeah. These guys know things sometimes, you know. And then after that, um, I released another track called Moreover. And that sounded very well because I just come out of the heels of, of African Queen. So people looking for new stuff from home. And then I released Moreover with um, an Arturas on the track. And now, I just want to, to interject right here and say that um, we want to thank you. I, I know, I know. Um, uh, just a moment. Peter is about to die here. And that'd be good for anyone. Right? Are you still with me? Yeah, I'm there. Okay. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to thank you on behalf of Ianola Pictures because we have used, uh, we have gotten your permission to use some of your music in some of our past productions. And yeah. it, it, it really forms a signature for a lot of our scenes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously you can use man you know yeah. I am always I'm always happy to help with my my music and my talent my people man you know because we all have to do this together man we have to succeed together you know something I'll tell you what I know okay. is that we don't have many people on our side so we better get behind each other you with me on that that, that that's uh, i'm going to to just clip that get that clip and i'll definitely be sharing that everywhere because it's true it's very true and it's very very profound i don't think many people grasp that well they, they because they're sleeping the war against us is not over you know the war against us has never ended it never ended you understand yeah so any opportunity we get to help each other we must take that opportunity because we must always think of the collective. And if I be me, if I may be a little more precise, we must always think of the black collective. Yeah. Because everything is stacked against us. So when you call me and say, boom, man, we're doing a production, we need some music, man, I'll jump at that opportunity to help. Because I want to see my people succeed. Yeah. And if it means that that's what I have to contribute to succeed, to see my then I just I have an obligation to do it. For me, it's like an internal imperative because I understand what we are up against. I understand that we have to do everything 10 times better for the door to open for us. Yeah. So, so if my music is going to enhance what you're doing, then I would have contributed to your success. You know? I'm, I'm so happy, you know? <laughs> so, so to tell you right now, um, I have, um, I just finished a new track with, Eric Darius. Eric Darius is one of the hot new saxophone players in America. Hot, hot, hot. Eric is on always on tour of course. He's doing stuff with um, Gerald Albright and these guys. That's the levies that. And we just did a song together called um, Blue Light. It's going to be released in the States on the 1st of October. Okay. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll be keeping an eye out for that one. Keep an eye out for that, man, you know. But um, I, I, I will, I'll get a copy to you as soon as it's released, man. That's, that's going to be a hot track. And, and so my last track, moreover, I got on to, my people got me on to Sirius XM. 
Now, every new car in America comes out of Sirius XM. Right, right. Satellite radio. Yeah, they have a platform of about 35 million people. Now, not all 35 million people are listening at the same time because they're different programs. But if you're on Sirius XM, that means you've hit mainstream America. So I'm there pretty often. I'm also on Music Choice. Music Choice is a channel in America that shows you. They don't play music. There's the name of the artist, the name of the song on the, on the record label. And sometimes they do a trivia on the artist. So occasionally they do a trivia on me. And that's in 65 million homes. Wow. So now what we should be doing now is for me to find ways and means to get other television artists doing the similar thing that my people handle so they can piggyback on what I'm doing so I can get them there. You know what I'm saying? I want to be able to, to I have a friend of mine who plays guitar and he's a good guitar player and, and I'm hoping that I can influence my people to bring him on board. Man, you know? Very quickly, I, I don't know who the friend is, but have you ever heard of Javi? That's Javi I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I I heard Javi not too long ago and I was I was really blown away. Shout out to you, Javi, if you're watching this. Javi's uh, very good. Very good. Very good player, man. Yeah. And I'm hoping that um I've been talking to my people about him. And I'm hoping that I can get some of his music placed with mine is, you know. You know, it's it's interesting that I was I was lying in my bed one afternoon, lying on my bed there, and I'm on my tablet and I put on CD 101.9. That's one of the big stations out there. Mm-hmm. And they played um, Babyface, then they played Isley Brothers, and then Boeing. <laughs> when you hear that, you know you have arrived. What is that feeling like? What is that feeling when you hear yourself playing on a mainstream outlet like that? Something, uh, something that you wrote, your own creative uh, creation. Well, for me, strangely, when that happens, I just start to think country, you know. It's not often that it happens, I think about myself. I just think, mm. you know, um, you know, Gideon sent Helen, you know her name? Yes. Yeah. Gideon sent me a clip because he was in his car driving home and he heard moreover on watercolors on Sirius XM. And you're so excited. And then another friend sent um, a WhatsApp message to me from um, Tennessee. Because she'd been heading in Tennessee every day. And Sanders, Sanders grants him to call me one day because some guests wanted to meet me because he'd been hearing my music in Tennessee and they discovered from a radio station in Tennessee that I was, I was from St. Lucia. You know? So but when that happens, I mean, if you if you listen, listen to a station, you have Babyface, you have Isaac Brothers and then Boeing, and that is that is couldn't get more yeah. mainstream. Yeah, that that's very mainstream. <laughs> yeah. Isley so, Brothers, come on. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you've gotten there, initially you say, "Oh wow, that's I'm really happy about my music got there." Yeah. But for me, it's always about country, and I always think of how I can use my exposure, my music, and develop some nexus between that and selling the country as a tourism destination because I have to for my country. I have to do it mm-hmm. because this is what drives our economy. Right. So, so it is the more of us that can get there, 
better it is for the tourism industry because we can sell the country. Right. And, and if we sell the country and tourism does good, then there's more employment, you know what I'm saying? And then musicians have made more money. So it's not just, it's not a boo thing. I never seen as a as a as a as a as a boo thing. As a matter of fact, anytime I, I go to perform, I always tell these guys, man, make sure when I come and say, make sure you see St. Lucia, right? Just make sure you associate my name with St. Lucia. You know, so like, because like when we, I used to do the Lincoln Center almost every year with Arturo. Sometimes we'd have Hugh Masakila, or we'd have um, TCD the local who was in the Lion King, or somebody like that. And so we'll finish our rehearsal. And, and when you look at the band on stage, right? I, what goes through my mind is that my guitar is there, but that guitar can represent anything, you know, anybody from anywhere. But when I come on stage there, and you say, guitar, Ronald Boyson, but that doesn't mean anything you can't tell me, St. Lucia. Make sure you say St. Lucia. You have to say Ronald Boyson from St. Lucia. You know what I'm saying? Because I understand what it means for my country. You know? This is a little island, you know? Yeah. And and uh, to get there is not easy, man. You know what I'm saying? And you know what, too? I'll tell you what, huh? You're always under tremendous amount of pressure at that level. I was about to ask about that. Yeah. Because often, if you get there and you have the biggest names in the world, and then there's a thing they say from St. Lucia and Ronald Williams, and people want to know, who is this guy, this guy we're here? Except if, you know, after a while, your name gets known and people get used to you. But the initial stages, man, there's a lot of pressure yeah. because everybody else there is from big countries and you come from a little island in the Caribbean and people come in there to focus on you, how you got there. Yeah. I mean, when we did um, Tai Chung, there were people there from Italy, from Holland. from Tai, tai Chung, where exactly is that? In Taiwan. Okay. People there from... from uh, so we did Tai Chung and then we did Taipei. And so the people from all over the world, my big names. And we had done a concert before. I don't know what they heard, but they put us to close the last concert. We, put, we closed. And we played for one hour and they called us back home. So after that, we got back and we went to Anguilla. We went to Anguilla. And then when you do a festival in, in Beckway. So I'm saying to the guys, we got to the morning of the show, the morning before the, the, the night of the show, we having breakfast in the hotel. I'm saying to the guys, boy, it's amazing. We just came out of Taichung doing 27,000 people. And tonight we got to do maybe, I don't know, maybe a thousand people or so. Yeah. And the guys dancing my drummer and my bass player said, boy, crazy. The official numbers from the Taiwanese government a thousand people in the park. I mean, just a sea of people. Uh, wait, of can people. you say that number again? Uh, you, you were breaking up a little bit oh, there. The That's the official numbers from the government. And I thought it was 27,000. Wow. And let me tell you what. So when you get these people, then man, you say, Lord, look at where I am. Look at what I've come to. You know? And then you begin to think about your country, your little country that you come from. And what you can do for your country, you know, yeah. it's um, it can be very gratifying. But um, if you're not mature, 
it can you always have to make a concerted effort to remain humble yeah and keep your humility because this is a gift there are about i mean seven billion people in the world or something right and you might assume that there are a lot of mistresses in the world but it's not a lot of, a lot of us god didn't give that time to a lot of people you know man right he gave it to a few of us man and because we're so fortunate to have gotten that free we have to be very humble with it and not allow these successes to go to our heads and we must be very willing and eager to pass it on because we got it free you know and every opportunity we get we get we must pull somebody along with us you know? so so when i get there and i see that kind of crowd of people that turn up to see me um i just have to say thank god man you know the only problem i have is that i i go into a certain zone a certain frame of mind before i go on stage where i i like to be in my own zone by myself i don't like you kind of have to lock in right yeah so i think the fellas in my band understand that so they they kind of kind of avoid talking to me before because you know everybody has to Everybody has a different way of preparing to go on stage. Right? Because, and that's another thing I want to say to the young people, man, to make sure every time you go on stage, you try and do this thing good every time, every time. Because you go and get one or two bad reviews, and you can ruin your career. Yeah. Media will, at that level, the media is always there coming, you know, you, you, you're going to get a bad review on the media. Can give you a lot of trouble. So just make sure you 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 well prepared, man. You know, well prepared, and um, make sure you get as much as possible what you want from your rider. In your in your rider is there for you, and then you don't want to be dealing. That's the, the reason why it's always best to have a to have somebody representing you, because you don't want to be dealing with issues. If I ask for Roland Jazz course and and you give me something else i don't want to be the one dealing with that before i go on stage but that's stress you know right. so you have to have somebody ahead of you dealing with everything for your rider make sure everything for your rider is there so that you don't have a problem when you get on stage you don't want to be dealing with non musical things on stage yeah. you know right. or just before you go on stage because these things are only going to distract you you know and you're not focused you know? so so you need to get what I tell young people get a can get a, a good agent and a good manager and a good lawyer because especially with the lawyer thing if you don't have a good lawyer you just might find you generating money you're not getting it <laughs> you're generating money for someone else with the mothers right <laughs> <laughs> you have to make sure you have a good lawyer okay. and don't go signing things without consulting if a lawyer don't yeah. sign you know right now i'm going through a legal thing in america there because one of these hip hop fellas when it sample one of my songs and um uh i'll give you that, that information off there so you can go listen to it it's okay. on it's on it's on youtube he has he's probably close to a million views now wow and he didn't he didn't play over some of my music he just Took a piece of my song, put it in his song. So, 
I'm my agent and lawyer is dealing with Latin America. I can't deal with that, you know, that is not my forte. All right. So, you know, and the other thing I want to tell young musicians, man, everything you put out there, make sure you can prove it's yours. Make sure you have your, your, your copywriting well taken care of. Don't, make, don't fool around with that because something can go wrong in 20 years time. You know what I'm saying? Don't take chances. Something can go really wrong. <laughs> really wrong. And yeah. had I not had proof that was my song, I'd be in trouble. Yeah. And, and the lawyer says, the lawyer tells me, don't worry, that's a slam dunk. They can't get away from that because he didn't, that is, he, he, he infringed on my mastering rights. He, he took something that was originally recorded. Not, he didn't replay it. He didn't replay the parts. He just took a piece of my recorded stuff and put it in the song. You know, so the young musicians must know that you have to make sure, be sure to have all your copywriting well done. And also be very careful about who you have in the room when you're writing. A lot of them don't understand that. Do not have people in your room when you're writing. Do not. Because they can steal your ideas. Not only steal your ideas, if you, if you and I are in a room writing a song and you have a friend there, right? And I said, um, I said, if, if, if the person who was there says, um, man, you all should put out their best, just say, together we aspire. And then we just casually say, oh, that's a good idea, okay. Together we aspire. And we go our way. So you go and you register the song and your name and my name. And one day the guy has a song and the song becomes a hit and makes money. The guy says, listen, I put that line. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that, that's my, so where's my split? Where's my split for the song? But I right. put that line, I right. told you all that I will put it. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> now you're in trouble. Now you're in trouble. So the guys in America, what we were writing rooms, I'm my friend of mine uh, who has, I'm this friend of mine, he has about seven Grammys. So he took me to a tour of this prison thing. And he has a writer's room. Uh, and if you're not writing, if you're not part of the writing, you can't go in that room when the fellows are writing, you must not be in there. Because anything anybody says in that room, they put it in the song, right. that person's supposed to be part of the split. Yeah, that's now intellectual property. Could be two words. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? So, yeah. so I'm very meticulous about who is wrong if I'm working on a piece of material and, and that kind of thing. It wouldn't happen to me because I would make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know? So when fellas come and you do your work and start to tell you, why, why you don't do that, man? Put that there. Nabu, say, say okay. thanks, but you know. I will, thanks, I will, but no thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll probably stop working on the project. You know? Yeah. But that doesn't hardly have ever happened to me because um, if you're working on stuff, it'll be mainly people who were working on the project who were there. Yeah. And if anybody else is there, I'll tell them, listen, do not. Um, Make any contributions, don't distract us. I will not tell them, do not. Um, 
I'll find a polite way to say it. You know, sounds yeah, like, yeah. Let you know that right now we don't need to hear your input. We don't need your input <laughs> because that can be problems down the road. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, have you ever thought of having like uh, educational workshops or something of that sort, or even creating a masterclass? Uh, where you have a course that you create for. Well, um, but I haven't thought about it, but you know, I I, I just figure everybody has easy access to me. Man. Everybody wants to know. You just call me. Man. <laughs> I always call me. Man. You know? I I I I'm easy to find, man. You know, and I'm very eager to to. Just give information when I know, man. You know. Yeah. And the other thing I want to tell musicians, yeah, man, when you when you're going to do when you're going to work on stuff, if you have a band, you don't necessarily have to record with your band. If you have a particular track to do, find the musicians who can put it on the best. Right. Understand? Right. So that you have a masterpiece recorded. And let your band go and learn it. Right. You with me on that? Yeah. But don't bring your band to record because that's your band. No, no. <laughs> bring who? You only sell yourself, you know, and yeah. you only sell music. So the musicians you have access to who can give you the best product, bring them in and pay them. Right. Yeah. That makes complete sense. If you have, if you have the singers, you want to use the singers, I understand that. But as far as the you know, the musicianship is concerned, bring the best musicians who can So you have a really good master, track. yeah. And then and then let your people go and learn it and play it like that. Yeah. I, I don't record when I'm recording, depending on what I compose, I just bring in other people. I would have a track and I bring no stupid, just one part of the song, and then bring somebody else to play the other part. I just want this to play that part of the piano, and bring somebody else to play the, the rest, because that part of the song, he's the one who has the style that I want to hear. There. And um, then you have to determine well, this bass player has this style I'm looking for, because my new project I'm working on there. I have ones from Barbados. I have Nicholas Brank on one track, and two on another track. I have a saxophone player from Trinidad on another track. I have one from a saxophone player from America on another track. You know, it all depends on what you're looking for. Right. Each song has its own chemistry. And you have to look at the, the pool of musicians you know, and who has the best chemistry to do this for that song, who has to do it for that song. I know if I'm doing a Latin track, I'm going to call Nurse, I'm going to call Jesse from the Graceman. Because these guys have that Latin thing down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm not going to call somebody I work with that does smooth jazz or RB or has a gospel vibe to do a Latin track for me. Right. Because you do it. But it won't be. It'll be the best. Yeah. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. Just going to find who's going to do the best and pay them and I have my track. And then after that, when you when you go up one like then whoever I'm using have to go and learn it. Yeah. Or, or I will just bring that person on, on the gig to do it because it, it has to be right all the time, you know? Yeah. 
so there are a lot of other things that I would do to, to just make sure, to be sure that the product, the, the, the product is right, is right. And the other thing I would like to talk with my young musicians about is when they start to tour, what is expected of you, you know? How you handle yourself on tour, how you deal with the media and things. You don't want to end up looking like some foolish guy talking nonsense all the time in the media. They people ask you a question, you know, and saying, what nonsense, you know. You know, that doesn't work all the time. Right? You, know, <laughs> you like to know that if, um, too much, too many times I find musicians are given an image as though. All we know is music, man. Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> you know, I'm not good enough, man. Huh? We're not too many people, man. We, music artists have said some of, the, some of the most profound things throughout history. So we can't be foolish people, you know. To this day, people are still quoting what artists said since, since the 17th century. You know what I'm saying? That's as profound artists can become. But, and, and so, I want to see a lot of the young artists, man, arm themselves with the ability to deliver media so that you, you, know, you, you, you have a sense of vocation and know how to, to sell yourself you know, as okay. somebody who's, who's not just singing or just playing a guitar, you know, playing a drum. We, we are much, we are far more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over the course of this conversation, I've heard uh you know how important it is for folks to see potential in people and give them opportunity especially Absolutely. in terms of especially young people yeah especially, especially young people yeah. um I, I i've heard about the importance of resourcefulness where when your your band was just starting out you know you he built that bass guitar and the other person built that that drum, that drum. yeah <laughs> right um and the importance of humility where you know at, even at such a young age you were basically on tour throughout the caribbean um but still kept a level head um and uh you know performed at at a level that kept propelling your career forward um you, you you gave us a roadmap for young artists in terms of um finding an agent and being open to being managed and <laughs> not just being open to being managed. You have to learn how to be managed. Right. <laughs> you have to learn how to be managed. This guy wants to get a manager. And then just cut the thing on the side of the manager doesn't know. You can't do that. Man. <laughs> you right. can't do that, man. Uh and you know, all these things come together, I, I think, to give this episode a lot, a lot of value, not only for musicians around the Caribbean, but also uh, for, for everyone to, to observe the importance of discipline, the importance of hard work, the importance of consistency and work ethic and all of these things. And I really want to thank you uh, for, for helping, helping us learn all these things today or reminding us of all these things today, uh, just for your story, just for telling us your story. And um, I, I'm sure your story today has been an inspiration to uh, the majority of viewers and listeners. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate <laughs> it, man. You know, and uh, let's keep supporting the young musicians, man. You know, we have to we have to do everything we can to open doors for them and make sure they succeed too, so that they don't have to take us long right. to where I am. You know, right. we we got to we got to 
be committed to see into it that will make stars of our young people in their country. Right. You know, I, I think I think one of the things that we have to do is government has to remove all this import duty on musical equipment, just move it out. Remove all the import duty on recording equipment. Um, because I think the deterrent that that import duty is on the, the development of the music industry is not worth the money government makes. That's a that's a very good point. <laughs> you understand? It is yeah. too it is too big a deterrent of, a, of the development of a multi-billion dollar industry for you to make a few of two me how many thousand dollars a month on, on import duty you could make on musical equipment and solution. Just yeah. remove it. Let people yeah. bring in yeah. instruments. Let it, guess what? If a guy goes to the music school, two young guys go to the music school, right? That is where a lot of free gone guys in music, that's where you get guys each other in this former group, you know? That's how it happens at Berkeley all the time. That's how a lot of great groups come out of America. These yeah, guys were yeah. at Berkeley together, you know? And, and they hate each other and they say, oh, let's, let's set up a group, man. But you know what? You, you go and buy a, a keyboard. If you buy a, 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 a let me see what's, what's a chorus now, but that's thousands of dollars. But you are plus the duty. When are you having young people? We're going to get money to do that. And we're dealing with a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. That is just waiting for us to come and grab our share of it. And you have all the import duties there. Nonsense. And even if the guy buys an instrument and he gets it duty-free, and after a year he says, no, I don't like that anymore. Another send Lucian will buy it from him. Another young musician will buy it. Yeah. So it's not to say it goes to waste. So mm-hmm. just remove all these duties and remove all all on. on Musical equipment and remove all the duty on, on recording equipment so studios can blossom all over the country. So we got a multi billion dollar industry going that yeah. is driven by our own human resource. Nobody can take it from us. You know what I'm saying? Nobody can take that from us because every successive generation will keep it going. Yeah, and keep getting better and better. And I will, I will, I will knock this new administration while I'll be on the case. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I will, I will do whatever it takes to make sure this happens. We have to remove yeah. the import duty on musical equipment for these young people, but I believe it will happen. It will happen because the, the new prime minister keeps talking about the youth economy and there's nobody more interested in music consumption than the youth. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They're the ones driving it, man, you know? And more than that, a lot of the young people driving the music are not people who come from privileged backgrounds. You know? That's grassroots fellows, you know? grassroots young people who are driving this thing. And, and they need the help. So, so I am appealing to this new administration to, to quickly remove all these import duties on musical equipment. Don't come with no 50%, that's not good enough because you're giving hoteliers 25 years tax holiday. So just remove it. Just remove it on the musical equipment for young people and remove the import duty on all the recording equipment. You know, deal with it like a serious industry that we want to develop. The Jamaican artists bring um, about a billion US dollars a month into Jamaica. I wasn't That's aware of that. That's a lot of money. I'm talking a billion US. These guys are making money coming through the air. Yeah. And guess what? Jamaica, Jamaica does not have to promote Jamaica as a tourism industry. They don't want to. They don't have to spend a penny because the music will do it all. Yeah. Everybody's listens to the music, so they eventually just want to go where the music is from. 
You want to see what? But look at what the Denry segment did with the forest for a while. Oh yeah, I heard about Denry segment. Right, there was an era about two years ago, and the Denry segment was big. Yeah, I, I was at the time I was actually living in Boston, and a, a friend of mine messaged me saying, "Hey, Keddy, isn't this from from Saint Lucia? Isn't this music from where you're from?" And I listen, I say, what, 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 what kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then your segment was worldwide. Worldwide. Is worldwide, probably. Still. I, I watched, I watched, a friend of mine sent me a clip of a New Year's Eve party in Switzerland. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at this thing, I'm seeing, this must have about, this probably about 2,000 people there. And I am listening to the music in the back and I'm split in the middle, man. Split in the middle, then we say, man. <laughs> Wow. Understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so if we can do that, man. You know, it's it's the import duty that musical equipment, the recording equipment generates here in Saint Lucia. It is not worth keeping that duty and that thing when you look at the big deterrent it is to the development of the whole industry. So we must just remove it yeah. and yeah. find ways and means. To incentivize the young musicians and young recording art and, and guys of the young, young guys in the recording studios, let us get this thing going and get this industry off the ground. Yeah, yeah and it makes then, a lot of sense. Finally, I think, I think um, in this youth economy, with with, um, with regard to the music, the man has to set aside some money and put it there to promoting the music and the artists, positioning our music. And, and the young artists, get them where they can be seen and heard. When Barbados got into Trinidad and made and started to blow up in Trinidad, with what we call the Bajan invasion, when the Barbados um, ring band all that started to break up Trinidad, the Barbados yeah. was paying for these artists to be on shows so the music can be heard. And this is what we have to do here, man. We have to hook up our music here and hook up our artists here. Nowadays, because of this new summit, the recent summit between the Caribbean and Africa, we need to find out how we can do some cultural exchanges with Africa. I think it's happening. I think it's coming. And get one of our artists to record a whiskey or somebody like that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because when these African guys doing a big concert, man, you're talking about 80,000 people in the stadium, 80,000, 100,000. When you see, when you see um, one of these American artists in the video and he has a Bugatti on a Rolls Royce on a big house, he went down that you know. The difference with the African, he owns it. <laughs> it's his. Yes. The African artist, he owns that. Right. Now just imagine we have our guys trying to collaborate with these guys. You get into Africa, you need 80,000 people in the stadium. But rather than doing that, we have our fellows hustling to get into Miami Carnival, Trinidad Carnival, Martinique Carnival. No. You know what I'm saying? I, I have a very different vision. But anyway, man. Yeah, I, I, I can only hope that, uh, you know, this episode goes out and uh, people, people really hear and and resonate with those things because I do I, I think uh, the ceiling will be moved and I think a lot of progress will be made in terms of the ads not only in St. Lucia but throughout the entire Caribbean in the coming years and I'm excited to see it I know some people right now things look a little bleak um, you know we have okay, COVID 
Yeah, don't, don't give up. up. Yeah, don't give up. Um, <laughs> guys, uh, you're watching this on uh, the 20th tomorrow. Um, we will be back with you again on October 4th. As you know, Family Reflections is bi-weekly. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Boo. And, um, Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it, it was really a pleasure. And um, folks, I'll see you guys in two weeks. Ciao. Bye.